Please turn back to that portion of God's Word that we used as our call to worship, Ecclesiastes, and the fifth chapter, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. While you're turning there, as part of the family conference that I participated in in Costa Rica, I've been preaching, as I've said, uh, the last two weeks, the fruits of the labors for that that conference. And as part of that conference, one of the topics that I was asked to address was the man of God leading his family in preparation for worship on the Lord's Day. And I must confess that upon being asked to take up that particular topic, I was a little bit shell-shocked because it was not a topic that I had previously given much consideration to, and it's not a topic that I can say personally I have ever heard anyone preach on. The man of God leading his family in preparing their hearts for worship. I'm not talking when I say that about leading in worship in the home. The specific request was that we would consider what the Bible says about preparing ourselves before we come to the house of God to worship God. And so I, as I've been doing, want to continue to share with you the fruits of those labors and to walk through this as we consider the portrait of the Christian family. So notice again the words of Solomon here in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 1. Walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear or be ready to hear, as some translations render it, rather than to give the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth And let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by his many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed, better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Might God be pleased to bless the reading and the preaching of his word. If you can recall uh, from a few weeks ago when we first started this mini-series, one of the last things that I said about the man who fears God is that his heart is always towards the gates of Zion. We were looking at Psalm 128 And at the end of Psalm 128, uh, there is this benediction that's given. The Lord bless you out of Zion. And therefore, one of the points of application that I wanted to make is that as we look at this portrait, within the portrait, there's a picture hanging on the wall. This man's hope is hung upon Zion and upon the king who sits on his throne in Zion and therefore his heart is always towards the place where 
His King, His God, His Savior is pleased to descend and meet with His gathered people. That's what I said a few weeks ago. He has the man of God who fears God, has a high and a right regard for God. And he has, therefore, a high and a right regard for the worship of God. And therefore, because he has this high and right regard for the worship of God, it's never in this man's mind a question with him as to whether he and his family will or will not worship with the gathered people of God. That's without question. If the people of God have been commanded to gather together, the man of God is quick to take his family and to make that ascent to the hill of God that they might worship with the people of God in the place of God. But it's more than just that, this high and right regard for God and the worship of God. David says in Psalm 122 and verse 1, I was glad. I was glad, I was exceedingly joyful when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. That's the song of the heart of the man who fears God. You have said that it's time to go. Well, not only is it not a question as to whether my family and I will gather together in this place, but as you call me and my family to come to this place and to gather together to worship, I am exceedingly joyful in the expectation of doing that. There's a gladness which is expressive in this man's heart and in his thinking is expressive of a readiness to enter worship. A readiness to enter worship. So it's more than just whether he and his family will go. This godly man is his great concern, having a high and a right regard for God, is also not just whether we will go, but how. How they will go. Because that's the great concern of God in the Scriptures. I hope we recognize that about worship. That it's not just that God would have us to worship, but what God is chiefly concerned with is how we come before Him to worship. He says to Aaron, Leviticus chapter 10 and verse 3, I must be sanctified in them that come near to me. And before all the people, I must be glorified. That's what he said to Aaron. We find similar language in Psalm 89 and verse 7, where it says, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those around Him. That's God's great concern, and therefore, it ought to be the great concern of those who would worship Him. Therefore, we do well, brethren, to heed the instruction of this text when Solomon, the old preacher, writes here, Walk prudently, walk prudently, guard your steps. Keep your foot when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear. Be ready to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools for those who do not guard their steps and those who are not ready to hear 
do not know that when they come into the presence of God in that way, they do evil. That was the instruction of the old preacher to those people of God. And John Gill and some other commentators have what I think is a very good observation about the intent of Solomon in writing that. I'll quote Gill. Others have said similar things. But Gill says this, Having observed many vanities under the sun, the preacher directs men here in chapter 5 to the house of God, where they might learn the nature of these vanities. And where they might learn how to avoid them. Though, he says this, if care was not taken, this is the preacher's concern, that if care was not taken, they would find or they would introduce vanity there also in the house of God. Which of all vanities, Gill says, is the worst and ought to be guarded against. So, he goes on and he says, When men go to any place of divine worship, which is their duty and their interest, and for their honor and their pleasure and their profit, they should take care to keep their feet, so that the vanities of the world do not creep into the worship of God. And I would say to us men, it's our responsibility to take heed to that and to lead our families in this way with regard to worship. It's a high, it's a wonderful, it's a profitable, it's a pleasurable, it's an honorable thing that we've been called to. And I'll say this, I'll probably repeat this, but I'll say this now because it's just been burned into my mind. Men, brothers, our children will watch the way that we worship they will mark whether or not it's of great concern to us, firstly, to be in the place of worship. They will mark, then, secondly, whether it's of great concern to us as to how we worship. And they will mark how we lead them to the place of worship. And based on those kinds of things, it will have an influence on the thinking of our children with regard to what they see the worship of God to be. So vital. In order for us to guard our steps, in order for us to approach the house of God the way that we should, there are certain fundamental principles which must govern our thinking concerning worship, which ultimately will govern how we and how our families approach worship. For instance... The man who truly fears the Lord has a sober assessment of what true worship consists of. He understands who it is that he's coming to meet with. He's not bringing his family together for a social gathering with friends. I am so thankful that we have friendships. And I'm so thankful that we enjoy fellowship with one another here and at times outside of this place. But my dear friends, the primary purpose of our gathering together in this place is not for a social gathering of friends. We come to meet with the living God. And the man of God sees that and he's aware of that. He understands it. He knows that he's not taking his family to a place of entertainment. Neither is he getting his family together even to go meet some kind of human dignitary. 
Our Bibles tell us, they teach us very plainly that it's the infinite, eternal, holy God of heaven and of all creation that we mortal, finite creatures of the dust are coming at this moment to have dealings with. And the man of God is aware of that. He's aware of what the preacher says here in verse 2, that God is in heaven and I am on earth. Secondly, the man who fears God is not only aware of who it is, but he's aware that the place which he's approaching is the house of God. It is the temple of the living God. That not only is this man and his family coming and being called to come before God, but they in their coming are coming to the place where God has promised to predominantly and peculiarly dwell and to make himself known on earth. Now I mentioned this several months ago in taking up the text from 1 Corinthians chapter 3 with regard to the fact that we are the temple of God. But I think that it bears repeating and bringing to the forefront of our minds again. That we are coming before God in this place and that God has made a sure promise that this is where He is most pleased to make Himself known. We're told as we read through the scriptures that this place is where He is said to record His name. Exodus 20 verse 24. Isaiah 60 verse 7. It's called the house of His glory. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 22. It's called the dwelling place place of God by His Spirit. It's the place, brethren, where the Lord Jesus Himself can be found walking in the midst of His candlesticks. When we read those first chapters of Revelation, that's what we see. And that's what we find, is that this glorious Savior who's blazing with the brilliance of an infinite fire and majesty is found walking in the midst of the candlesticks. And as He walks in the midst of the candlesticks, He is found to be very familiar with the people. This is the epicenter of worship in the earth. The place wherein God's name is proclaimed. The place wherein God's glory is revealed when the word of God is opened up. It's the place where God has been pleased to communicate to His people His choice and His precious and His most excellent mercies. There's no other place in all the world at this moment where the infinite comes nearer to the finite. The creator to the creature, the majestic to the dust, nowhere else in all the world wherein we encounter our God so manifestly, so present, so conspicuously, so near than in this place. He has given to each one of us His Spirit. He dwells within each one of us, which is a phenomenal thing. 
And yet we're told that we, like our Savior, are like living stones, having had the Spirit given to us, poured out into our lives, ourselves individually being the temple of the living God, that when we assemble, we come together brick by brick with the fullness of the Spirit, so that here in this place, as we are all joined together in one, God meets with us. And as such, this man's great concern is that he and his family would render the kind of worship that this great God demands and that this great God deserves. The man who fears God is deeply concerned that he offer up to his God and his Savior worship that is befitting of the one that is so great and so glorious as he Therefore, what that means negatively is that this man does not come before God presumptuously, offering, as we're told here in Ecclesiastes 5.1, the sacrifice of fools. This man doesn't come presumptuously demanding his own ways. He doesn't come demanding that his own will be done. He dare not lay his hand on the ark. His worship is harnessed and his worship is regulated by God's revealed truth. He's heard the words of the Lord Jesus that God is seeking those who worship him in truth. But he also knows this, that not only is it that God is seeking those who would worship him in truth, not having their own will and ways carried forth, but God will and ways carried forth, he also knows this, that God is spirit and that those who worship must worship in spirit as well as truth. God is seeking such, we're told in John chapter 4. God is seeking such to worship in this way. What does that mean? Well, at least this, if nothing else. At least this. God is very concerned Christ is very concerned about your heart in this moment. His complaint about the people of old was that these people gather together and they worship me, they give service to me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Their heart is a million miles away from what I have called them to do in lifting up their voices and coming before me and hearing the word of God communicated. They act like it. They seem like it, it. But it's empty. God wants our heart in worship. And therefore, the man of God who walks in the fear of God is ever mindful of his own heart and he's ever mindful of his family's heart. Where are your hearts? Where is my heart today? Where are my family, my my sons and my daughters and my wife? Where are their hearts? Are their hearts here? Are their hearts engaged? Or their hearts on the other side of the earth thinking about something that doesn't even pertain to what we come to do today. The man of God is greatly concerned about that because he has a high and right regard for God and the worship of God. He's concerned that they would draw near with true hearts in full assurance of faith. That they would come before God with hearts engaged in true spiritual worship. That's his concern. 
And therefore, because that being the framework of his thinking with regard to worship, this man knows that in order to be able to bring the kind of worship that God desires and demands, that there are certain things which are absolutely essential and necessary. That his steps, we're told here in Ecclesiastes 5, would be carefully ordered. He understands that all acceptable worship is offered only through blood. He understands that he or his family cannot stand upright in the presence of the Almighty God apart from the atoning sacrifice of the blood of the Lamb. That the only way in which any of our approaches, the only way that any of our spiritual acts of worship are ever made acceptable to this great and to this glorious God is by faith exercising itself in and upon and through Jesus Christ. That all of his spiritual worship must be bathed in the blood of the Lamb. He knows that. He understands that. You and I have no right to come into the presence of the thrice holy God apart from the atoning sacrifice of the blood of, of the Lamb. And the man of God understands that. He's keenly aware of it. He also understands that there are necessary components in worship that make worship to be what it's supposed to be. And he understands that there are things necessary after worship How do you respond? Repentance, obedience, hope, confidence, joy. That's all part of what it means for God to be sanctified. That's all a part of what it means for God to be held in reverence. And therefore, the man of God guards his steps carefully with regard to all of those matters. But I mention them only in passing because my point is not to talk about what happens in worship or after worship this morning. My point is to talk about what happens before worship. The man of God also knows, and he takes it very seriously, that which comes before worship. That there must be, there must be a proper preparation There must be a proper preparation in order to render ourselves fit and in order to render ourselves ready to worship, which is chiefly the concern of this text before us, Ecclesiastes 5. You'll notice the language again. Walk carefully, walk prudently, guard your steps, guard your feet when you go. As you are going is the emphasis there. So that it's not just that we guard our steps in this place, but we will not be able to guard our steps in this place as we ought to if we do not guard our steps as we go to the house of God. Now many writers have made one point that I think is at least worth mentioning, and that is that common sense, common sense tells us this. Robert Martin, on his book on the Sabbath, said, special days call for special preparation. We all know that. Think about a birthday party. Think about a sporting event. Think about an entertainment event that you want to go to. Think about, my favorite is always, my favorite holiday is Thanksgiving. And I've used this illustration before. 
But think about when you're having an event, a special event that only happens one time a year. And think about how that as you approach that special event, in your mind, you're running through all of the things that have to take place beforehand in order to make that event to be the special event that it is. That's just common sense. Worldlings do that. And brethren, shouldn't we do that? This day... This day, the old writers have called this day the Regina de Irum, the queen of all days, the best of all days. This day, brethren, this day is a day that is crowned specially with God's blessings. Psalm 118 tells us this is the day that the Lord has made. And it's not referring to just any day. It's referring to the day in which Christ Jesus was raised and made the chief cornerstone of His church and of the purposes of God. And the psalmist says, This is the day that the Lord has made. And those things that we come to do are the greatest things in the world. They're the greatest things that concern you and I in this world. The Puritans called it the market day of the soul. A day, what they meant by that, a market day of the soul, was that this day that we are called to gather together in the presence of our God and our Savior to give worship to Him through our prayers and through our singing and through our hearing the Word of God is a day in which we trade in holy commerce and we traffic with God Himself. And therefore, as the psalmist goes on to say in Psalm 118, let us rejoice and be glad in it. Thomas Watson, in writing on taking taking heaven by storm. And in one of the chapters, he's writing on the Sabbath day, but he says this, When therefore this blessed day approaches, we should labor that as the day is sanctified, so may our hearts be sanctified. It's just common sense. It's just common sense. But it's more than that. And that's what I'm jealous to point out to ourselves this morning. It's not just common sense that special days require special preparation. But God requires this of us. He requires of us, brethren, when we come to this place, men, especially I'm talking to us about how we lead our families. But ladies, it includes you. And children, it includes you. God requires of us that we should be prepared. It's a command. He says to Aaron again, You'll remember the words that I read earlier, Leviticus 10.3, I must be sanctified in them that come near to me. And one writer has said, Keep your steps when you go. In other words, fruitful and acceptable worship begins before it begins. And therefore, we're to be mindful of it. The Jews designated the day before the Sabbath as a day of preparation. In Luke chapter 23, verse 54, we read, And that day was the preparation, 
And the Sabbath drew near. And that language, the day of preparation, that language is found four other times in the New Testament. Now I ask the question, where in the world does that idea come from? Why did the Jews do that? Why did they have a day that was marked as the day of preparation? Was this just one more of those things, those traditions of men that they heaped up with all of the other laws that they made themselves? Well, no. Turn to Exodus chapter 19. So I want you to notice, when God was pleased in Exodus chapter 19 to come down upon Mount Sinai and meet with the people there, He gives them a command. He gives them a very specific command in verse 10 to sanctify themselves so that they might be ready. Notice what He says in verse 10, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. God gives them a very explicit command. I am coming down to meet with you on Mount Sinai. And I am telling you that before I ever come to meet with you upon Mount Sinai, that you, Moses, are to instruct the people that they are to prepare themselves, that they are to get themselves ready, that they are to consecrate, that they are to sanctify themselves. And the same exact language is used in Joshua 3, it's used in Joshua 7, it's used in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And all of those passages have to do with God's drawing near and His meeting with His people. He is a holy God. And therefore, when God descends, He will not have His people to be found just doing whatever they please. There's a readiness. There's a poise about them. There's a focus about them. God is coming. And in each instance, it's clear that He gives instruction in all of those passages, Exodus 19, Joshua, 1 Samuel, he gives instruction that there's a distinct time separate from the time that they would interact with God so that they could prepare properly for themselves to meet with their God. I want you to notice another passage, 2 Chronicles chapter 29. This to me is a very interesting passage. We won't look through it. The whole passage is the recounting of the revival that God brought to the people of Judah in the days of Hezekiah. And it's very interesting because what happened, happened very rapidly in those days. God stirred Hezekiah and He stirred the people and therefore they were ready to come before God and they were making themselves ready to be able to worship Him appropriately. And I just want to notice a couple of things that are said here. Second Chronicles 29, verse 31. Then Hezekiah answered and said, uh, this is after he had given instruction for them to consecrate themselves, now that you have consecrated yourselves to the Lord, come near and bring sacrifices and thank offerings into the house of the Lord. 
And then in verse 35, notice what said, Also the burnt offerings were in abundance with the fat of the peace offerings and with the drink offerings for every burnt offering. So the service of the house of the Lord was set in order. Then Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced that God had prepared the people since the events took place so suddenly. The activity in the Old Testament, the activity of preparation for worship was considered to be a part of acceptable worship to God. Now, that was the old order, right? Everything that I've read from is all Old Testament. We would say Old Covenant. But here's the question that I want to ask of ourselves this morning. Does that mean, does that mean that we are exempt? Well, that's all Old That's all Old Testament. And I would say it doesn't mean that we're exempt. In fact, I would actually say it means the opposite. That it's even more necessary now than it was then. I just want you to consider this. Paul asked the Corinthians, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. And then he says, if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you all are. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, and it's written to the church under the gospel. Do you, brethren, not know that you are the temple of God and that God dwells in you and that if you defile the temple, if you destroy the temple, Paul says to the church, God will destroy you. As I think about worship, and I've thought about it considerably over the past month or so, especially, but as I think about worship, and I think about the way that we approach the living God, Lord's Day by Lord's Day. And I'm not just speaking specifically about this place, I'm talking broadly. It's apparent, it's apparent that we carry in our minds far too low a view of worship. And here's the test. We so often come so hurriedly, so carelessly, so glibly, so casually, so indifferently, as though grace somehow is supposed to lessen or even replace gravity. And brethren, I want to declare to you emphatically this morning, grace does not replace gravity in worship. It doesn't lessen gravity in worship. It makes worship all an infinitely weightier matter than it ever was under the old covenant. That's what I'm saying this morning. Grace makes it possible to stand affectionately and warmly before the Creator. 
but it does not remove any of the holiness of the ground upon which we now stand. Our God is an all-consuming fire. And even as the bush was set aglow in the presence of Moses with holy flames, yet it was not consumed. So we, brethren, we must understand that the only reason that we are not consumed by our approaches is because of the grace of God towards us. And it's by that grace that we've been made those living stones. And it's by that grace that we are said to be being built up as a spiritual house, a holy, a holy priesthood. And it's by that grace alone that we are made capable of offering up any spiritual sacrifices acceptable only through Jesus Christ. Should that lessen our worship? Should that rob our worship of gravity? The sheer recognition of what it is that God has done in and by His Son and He has done in the Gospel and He's done to us personally. The sheer recognition of that ought to cause us to fall on our faces in reverence and awe. It ought to make us to be ready to worship and to adore this great God in a much weightier manner. Forgiveness of sin and liberty in Christ does not remove fear. It doesn't remove reverence. It corrects it and it heightens it. There's forgiveness with you so that you might be feared. That's the whole argument of Hebrews chapter 12. Please turn there with me. I find this a most interesting argument that's being laid out by the author of Hebrews here. But in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29, there's a comparison that's given by the writer. He's comparing that old worship and Mount Sinai and what happened there to what it is that the people of God under the gospel have now been brought to. And what he says in verses 18 through 21, basically, is that the people of old feared and they trembled before that mountain that could not be touched. You've not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and the blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of the trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore for they could not endure what was commanded as if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. And the author is saying, you've not come to that. But you've come to Mount Zion, he says in verse 22. You've come to the city of the living God. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to an innumerable company of angels. You've come to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all. You've come to the spirits of just men made perfect. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. That's what you've come to. 
Does that lessen it? You would expect after that comparison that these old people came to a mountain that they were so terrified of that they could not even stand the sight of it without trembling. And you would say, you would think he would say something to the, to the effect of, but just relax. You've not come to that. Just relax. Just take it easy. But he doesn't lessen it here. He heightens it. Notice what he says at the end of this in verses 28 and 29. Therefore, in light of what you've come to, in light of what is yours, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace. And John Owen makes the point about that word grace, that one of the purposes of it is, let us be prepared by grace in our hearts and our minds. Let us have grace. Let us be prepared by it, by which we may serve. And the word there is worship. By which we may worship God acceptably with reverence and godly fear for our God is a consuming fire. The God of the gospel is a consuming fire. And my whole point, and his whole point here, is not, if we read this text in a manner that would cause us to think that our approaches to God should be any less weighty than those of old, we're re reading it entirely wrong. God has given us grace so that we might make our approaches to God in an acceptable manner, so that we might come before Him as we should with reverence and awe and the recognition that this great God that we're coming before is indeed a consuming fire, that He requires that we take the necessary steps to prepare ourselves to worship before Him acceptably in that way. I want you to notice, going back to Second Chronicles and the whole matter of what happened there with Hezekiah, there's something there that I think ties into this and is important with regard to what I'm saying. Second Chronicles chapter 30. Just notice what's said in verse, beginning in verse 17. For there were many in the assembly who had not sanctified themselves... Therefore the Levites had charge of the slaughter of the Passover lambs for everyone who was not clean to sanctify them to the Lord. For a multitude of the people, many from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover contrary to what was written. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord provide atonement for everyone who prepares his heart to seek God, the Lord God of his fathers, though he has not cleansed, been cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. And the Lord listened to Hezekiah and healed the people. Here's my point. Here's what I want to point out there. That though there was a failure externally due to the brevity of the events, this thing, this revival happened rapidly. And therefore, not all of the people were able to have atonement that would consecrate them before they partook of the Passover. And though there was failure externally due to the brevity of the events, yet God was pleased to accept them 
because of the internal posture and readiness of their hearts to truly worship Him. I find that striking. And not only that, I want to take it a step further because it would seem that Scripture actually makes the preparation of the heart for worship something of a measuring stick with regard to true godliness. There, there is, brethren, a direct correlation drawn in the Scriptures between the way that a man prepares himself for worship and the degree of the uprightness of his heart before God. And we do well to pay very close attention to that. I want to show you this. In closing, I want to show you this. I want to show it negatively, very briefly, positively, and then I want to show it by way of precept or command. I just... I want you to notice these. You don't even have to turn to them unless you just want to. But 2 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 14 reads this way. And he did evil because he did not prepare his heart to seek the Lord. Now that text in 2 Chronicles 12, 14 is spoken of Rehoboam, Solomon's son. And what we're told there is that he did not serve properly because he did not seek properly. And God's verdict upon that was that he did evil because he didn't prepare himself to come before God and to seek the Lord. Now, there's another text that says the same thing positively. 2 Chronicles 19 and verse 3. And this is talking about Jehoshaphat. And notice the words there with regard to Jehoshaphat. He said, Nevertheless, the Lord says, Good things are found in you, in that you have removed the wooden images from the land, and you have prepared your heart to seek God. Now, here's what I want to say about those two men. If you read the accounts of the histories of these men, both of these men's lives... Rehoboam and Jehoshaphat were a mixture of successes and failures. At times, they lived and conducted themselves in such a way that they honored the Lord and they did good. And at other times, they lived and they conducted themselves in such a way that both of them failed miserably. Kind of like ourselves. But the thing to note with regard to both of those men is that at the end of their lives, God's final verdict in His Word upon them is directly linked to the proportion of the preparations of their hearts to seek God. And almost all the commentators are agreed when that language is used, it signifies and has reference to worship. There's one more. When Samuel called Israel to repentance in 1 Samuel chapter 7, we find Samuel there in 1 Samuel chapter 7 also equating true repentance and uprightness of heart to a holy resolve to prepare themselves to seek the Lord. Just listen, verse 3 of chapter 7. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts... 
Then put away the foreign gods and the astros from among you, and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve or worship Him only. And if you continue reading, that immediate context is the context of a sacrifice being given and the people worshiping God. And Samuel says there, if you really are repentant, if your repentance and your uprightness of heart be true, according to what you seem to profess in turning to God, then it will be seen by the manner in which you have taken steps, measures to prepare your heart to worship God. Now, I always like to bring some friends with me in cases like this. And I want you to listen. There's three men. And I want you to listen to what they say. First, Jeremiah Burroughs, who, if you want to read anything on gospel worship, I would highly recommend his work on gospel worship. But Jeremiah Burroughs says this, You do not in truth turn to God except you make conscience to prepare your hearts. You do not in truth turn to God in worship except you make the conscious effort to prepare your hearts. That's Jeremiah Burrow. Now, one that I've quoted before by George McDearman. He said this, Your preparation for worship is the authoritative commentary on your consciousness of who you're coming to meet and your desire and your determination to meet with Him properly. The way that you and I prepare our hearts and the way that you and I lead our families to prepare our hearts to enter into the worship of God is an authoritative commentary on our recognition of who it is that we meet and our determination to meet Him properly. And then a third, Robert Martin. Our level of preparation is a barometer on which we may read the level of our love for God's day and by which we may rightly estimate not our professed but our actual esteem for His institution. What's the barometer of our hearts say with regard to our esteem for what we come to do? I want to remind you in closing that the man who fears God is concerned with what the eye of God is most occupied with. That's what the fear of the Lord means. A high and a right regard for God and a desire to bring all of his life under the eye of God that he might walk after God, that he might walk with God, and that he might walk before God in all things. And therefore he's concerned with what the eye of God is most occupied with. And because of that, brethren, what I'm saying to us is that we therefore must take seriously this call to preparation before entering into worship because it's everywhere in Scripture. We must guard our steps. So many forget that. That's what I'm fearful of. 
We don't prepare ourselves as we ought. We don't rise with anticipation. We're not ready to meet with God so often, and therefore we find worship to be dry, or we find it to be cold, or we find it to be distant, and we wonder why. Why is it dry? Why is it cold? Why can I enter in when so many others enter in with joy? Could it be? Could it be the lack of preparation of our hearts to seek God? We must guard against that. We must be in earnest. That's what faith does. It acts upon the principles and the ordinances and the directives and the commands of God. And it says, God, if you have said this and if you've promised to meet with us in this way, then, oh God, let me do this with all of the zeal and might within my soul that I might come before my great God and Savior. Christ has opened the way. Let us then be careful that we keep our steps in that way, by the due preparation of our hearts, lest we should do the very thing that the preacher wanted to guard those people against and introduce the vanities of indolence and apathy into the worship of our great God and Savior. Might God help us. Might God help us. Father, we ask that you would have mercy upon us, Lord. None of us in this room, if we're honest with ourselves, can say that we have worshipped you aright. We need the blood of the Lamb. And we need the grace of God that prepares our hearts to be able to worship you acceptably with reverence and awe and to realize that the person that we stand before, that we lift our voices up to and sing these songs to, and that speaks to us through the word, is an all-consuming fire. And that we've been granted access to that all-consuming fire, not so that we might be slack, or might just lisp words with no heart, but so that we might truly enter in with everything that's necessary to worship you in a way that's consistent with what you've commanded. Help us. Help us to take seriously this call to prepare our hearts that we might be ready Lord's Day by Lord's Day to enjoy the fullness of joy that is at your right hand and the pleasures forevermore that are in your presence. Please have mercy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.